Support for this podcast has been provided by Alliance Bernstein Investment Management and Research, making money meaningful. But from a chief scientist perspective, success looks a little bit different because we could think of other companies which from the private sector investment perspective were an amazing failure. But from a government perspective, were a great investment because if I invest in your company, but it fails, but out of that failing company emerge four, and sometimes the number is 40, new startups. As a venture capitalist, I still hate you. It was a bad investment, I'm not happy. As a government investing in your failing company, it was an amazing investment. This is Startup Stories from the Startup Nation. My name is Yigal Marcus. Thank you for joining us. In this podcast, we'll meet the entrepreneurs who have personified the economic miracle known as the Startup Nation, the State of Israel. We'll learn about the culture which helped incubate them and their ideas. We'll learn of their successes and, of course, their failures. And we'll explore why it is that Israel develops some of the leading innovators of our time. We now continue with part two of my interview with Avi Hasson, the former chief scientist of Israel. Should government be facilitating a global for-profit, you know, publicly traded company? What are your thoughts? So yeah, so so Intel Intel is a, is a different a different type of, of support and, and quite a unique one. I was uh, you know I had I was twice uh, in the decision in the room where decisions were made about uh, supporting Intel. And I was very um, I thought it, it's a great idea. I think what Intel has I think Intel is a great example of how multinational work with the Israeli ecosystem. There are over 370 multinationals who set up R&D centers, innovation centers in Israel. Intel is the largest one in terms of you know, its, its employment and impact. It employs about 11,000 people on the ground. It does both design R&D, but also manufacturing. So these are not just engineers and R&D people, but also has circles of impact um, on the Israeli economy. Uh, and I think Intel is a good example because it shows the win-win relationship that was created. So definitely, Intel is strategic to the Israeli economy and Israeli high tech in terms of being a large employer, in terms of working with subcontractors and, and as I've said, having larger circles of impact. But about 50% of Intel's revenues are made in Israel, not manufactured in Israel typically, even though some of it is, but designed, developed research in Israel. This comes from Intel's top management. It's not something I invented. Uh, probably every processor you, know, you use has some Israeli origins to it. So obviously Israel is very strategic to Intel. And it's not just strategic to Intel, it's strategic to Apple, it's strategic to Facebook, it's strategic to General Motors, it's strategic to food tech companies and so on. So I think that relationship proved to be very successful. But Intel, as I've said, is a, is a different pillar of our policy, which is working with the world and the multinational. But the, the, you know, the question I was talking about, which is a very legitimate one, should we support profitable companies in helping them do R&D? And the answer I gave was, always a very strong yes, but it's a yes, but. Um, because, and, and, and you know, let, let's, let's, let's imagine uh, uh, a conversation, which is not really imaginary. It takes place within companies between a, a CTO and you know, a chief technology officer and a CEO. So the CTO you know, comes very excited to the room saying to the CEO, hey, you know, we have an amazing, uh, an amazing technology that we found. It's gonna revolutionize everything we do in the company and triple our revenues. So the CEO, less excited, obviously, but, wants to hear more and just have a few questions to ask. So the first question he asks is, when are we going to have this ready? So CTO says, you know, three to five years, but this is really something amazing. So 
assuming the CEO is still listening, because obviously he needs to think about the next quarter, the next year. Uh, he asked one more question, saying, you know, what, what sort of, ri of risk does this project you know, uh, uh, represent? So the CTO can't lie, he's an engineer. He tells the truth, says, no, no, this is really risky. It's a, it's a new material. It's a, but but, if, but if, if we get this, this is quite amazing. Now, sometimes the project would go through. Many times it will happen on a back burner, just, you know, okay, you know, just take two people and work on it. Uh, but if just before going out, the CTO said, oh, by the way, we have 50% funding from the chief scientist to do this. Sometimes that changes the thing. And, and, and this sometimes is not imaginary. I, I know of many examples of projects that wouldn't have happened without our support. And these are the things we want to do, because even for the bigger profitable companies, going into a new sector or a new market or a new technology is tough. And what is nice in the Israeli scene is that because it's one agency and because everybody has been playing this game for 45 years, the big companies do not bring to the chief scientists the bread and butter mainstream products for funding. They don't. They do it by themselves. They come to us, to the place I worked, you know, with uh, really the, 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 the toughest projects, the things which are high risk, the things which are long term the things which may be require collaboration with academia. And this is exactly where I think government should be helping companies, even if they are profitable companies, because they find it hard to do on the, by themselves. On that note, what does this chief scientist look for? I imagine you get tons of applications and business plans. What do you look for in a business to make them attractive to you? So a, a lot of it is very similar to what a venture capital person would say. Because uh, when analyzing the technology, and by the way, I, I'm not sure I mentioned that, the, the chief scientist has a group of about 180 professional evaluators, uh, which we, we use for, you know, to, to actually do that, review those thousands and thousands of These are volunteers or you pay them? No, no, we pay them. They're not government employees. They're, you could think of them as full-time consultants. They're selected through tenders every three years. And all of them, besides having the, you know, the academic degrees, you could think, have industry background. These are people who worked in industry. There's amazing talent, you know, sometimes people 50 year old, too old maybe for high tech, but amazing, really amazing people who've been CTOs and VP R&Ds and CEOs of companies. Uh, and, and they are the backbone, really the backbone of everything that the chief scientist is doing and has been doing. So whenever an application is presented, an evaluator is assigned to look at it, typically more than one evaluator per project. And then just to make things clear, they don't just read the application. They go to the company or, or to the lab and they spend a full day there and it's painful. I've been on the other side. And, mm -hmm. and they really you know, analyze all the different aspects and write a, you know, a significant review on the technology, the people, the work plan, the market, the, compet the, the competition, and, and so on. And then there are committees which are comprised not just by government people, but also by industry experts, which review those applications and have to choose. And, and sadly, the chief scientist is the chairman of all, of all, all those committees. Ouch. Ouch, exactly. <laughs> so you could think about uh, how my daily life looked like. Uh, but it's really quite interesting because it, it covers all, as I said, all the sectors and, and so on. So choices need to be taken. Some of them are based on the same parameters because both the venture capitalist and uh, you know, the chief scientist look for strong teams, uh, groundbreaking technologies, big markets, uh, solid uh, work plans and business plans and so on. But then there are differences. I mentioned one of them, risk. Uh, risk is... Uh, I mean, it's called venture capital, but uh, risk is not something that is uh, uh, liked by, uh, you know, 
uh, by people working in the private sector, naturally so. And the second thing, of course, is exit. So a venture capitalist will always try to analyze how can I you know, bring liquidity to my investor, either through an M&A or an IPO and, and create huge gains um, to me and again to my limited partners, whereas in the chief scientist, it's not something we took into consideration. We could think, and there are many great companies which are not good VC investments because it's hard to understand how they will be exited, even though you could think of them as amazing you know, technology SMBs or even technology enterprises. Can you give us an example of one, without using a name, of, of something that crossed your desk that on a technology perspective was like, you know, wow, but in a practical application in the market, you had questions about whether it would uh, fly? Well, there, 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 so, so many examples I could think. But again, if it, just going back to your question, if it's something which is great technology, but we don't see a commercial purpose to it, we wouldn't fund it. We wouldn't fund it. Remember that within the chief scientists, our main purpose was to create economic impact. We're not there for science for science. There are other entities in the Israeli government which would support that, so no worries. Uh, but for us, there always had to be not just a, 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 an identified application, but also a a business plan and an entity to carry it forward to the market. Otherwise, we wouldn't fund it. And you only invest in for-profit companies? Yes, we only invest in for-profit companies, but uh, first of all, the, the, the profit uh, uh, margins could be different, let's say, than the ones seeked for uh, by, by venture capital. I even personally created a few programs in my term, and now actually there's a, a whole division within the Innovation Authority, which looked at things which are more towards uh, societal challenges and so on. And there sometimes the, uh, the profit is important because we want to create sustainable entities. We don't want to create something which leaves on government subsidies and support. But it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, it could be a break, you could think about it as a break-even company. A break-even company is good enough because, uh, because the benefit from the economies is supplied in, in different ways. This is very different than, uh, than what an Israel, uh, venture capital will look for. And of course, the other thing is we always looked on the Israeli angle. We want to make sure that we create value add and economic impact to the Israel environment and not just in general. So a company, let's think about an imaginary company where there's an Israeli founder, but all the employees are outside of the country and there's no economic value. It, we wouldn't support that uh, within the government. It doesn't make any sense. So you, you give grants. Um, what other kind of support do you provide other than money? Uh, do you sit on boards, by the way? No, 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 God forbid. No, no, no. The, 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 again, remember, government doesn't take That'd any That would be really equity. interesting if he did. <laughs> I, I, I sat on boards before uh, being a chief scientist, and now, again, but uh, no, no, I, I think you shouldn't mix the two. Uh, this was, again, part of my theology. You don't want government on your board. You don't want government as a shareholder. I don't think it's good. I don't think it's good for government either, by the way. Um, so, so we had our mechanisms uh, in a different way. But the idea was, this is something that you definitely do not as good as the private sector. Yeah, coincidentally, this, this chief scientist had board experience, but it's not something that you want to put into your system. Um, your job as government, I, I think, so we talked about the risk sharing, and that, that's a very important point. And I could really give you many examples of companies which were, you know, even Waze, which is a well-known example, and obviously uh, raised, uh, you know, most of its funding from uh, uh, venture capital firms, had chief scientist funding. And it had it at a time where that funding was 
important and relevant because it wasn't as hot and attractive to private investors. The challenges were there, the questions were there. It wasn't obvious, what is the business model? How are we going to put this through? And having the chief scientist funding was very, very, uh, very, very important to uh, to what they did. But besides the risk sharing, the probably one of the most important roles of the chief scientist is the world of infrastructure, uh, creating, maintaining, building the environment for Israeli high tech to thrive. And, and infrastructure includes a lot of things. It includes first and foremost human capital, and we could talk about it later. But making sure that Israel has enough high quality people you know, to be, to be, because this is the most important part or component of any uh, high-tech environment. It's probably the most important one. But in addition to that, I would add R&D infrastructure. To that, to that yeah. first point, sure. I read recently that there was something like 30,000 high-tech jobs that are needed and that the ability to tap into, into new fresh you know, blood and, and talent in Israel is really, uh, there's, there's a strain there. Yeah, and, and the reason is very simple. We're a victim of our success, right? right? Remember 370 multinational companies, uh, you know, over a thousand new startups every year, uh, more and more Israeli companies growing to be themselves, uh, large, well-established companies, you need more people. So whenever I talk to my peers, you know, uh, worldwide, they would go, you need more people? I mean, Israel has the lar- really the largest number, in, again, percentage-wise, of uh, you know, academicians, engineers, uh, and so on. And yet it's not enough. We need more people. Now, you know, in, the, in the early 90s, uh, Israel, then a five million people country, faced a, a potential catastrophe. We had to uh, absorb or assimilate one million immigrants from the former Soviet Union. Think about it. I mean, uh, think a about million it. people. A million in a five million people country, right? If you think about the United States or, or larger countries. Of course, that catastrophe turned out to be an economic miracle because we got an infusion of well-educated, you know, highly trained people, uh, which, which, which gave a lot, of, uh, a lot of boost to the Israeli high-tech than, than starting out. Now, now, unfortunately, as I used to say, I, you know, I talked to President Putin this morning and he's not going to send us one, more, one million people. We need to get up with a different source of, uh, of human capital. So that, that, that was a, a big part of what we did and we can talk about it because it was really one of my most important missions as chief scientists and mostly put the foundation to things that are taking place uh, now. But infrastructure is also, for example, tax environment. You want to create the right tax environment policies and incentives for all the different, for angel investors, entrepreneurs, multinational companies, institutional investors, all the people in the ecosystem to do more on this front. So that's another thing that uh, uh, that we did. Infrastructure is, is really a lot of things. It's creating the environment, the culture, um, the, 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 the social arena, if you'd like, for entrepreneurs to thrive. And this was a big, big part of the government and of the, of the chief scientist. So looking back on your six and a half year tenure uh, as chief scientist, what was the most successful company that you guys funded during that period of time? So that, that's a very interesting question because I think, you know, as a venture capitalist, it's very easy to answer. We can talk about my Gemini days and told you about my most successful companies. But as a chief scientist, your measurement changes. So I, I, mentioned, uh, I mentioned earlier ways, which got funding from a, from a venture firm. If I was a venture uh, investor, 
Putting in that million dollar at a very early stage would yield a, a, an amazing result, I can tell you, almost 100x on that investment. Obviously, we didn't get that 100x, remember? We don't have any equity uh, as such. Um, but from a chief scientist perspective, success looks a little bit different because we could think of other companies, and I'll give you some examples, which from the private sector investment uh, perspective were an amazing failure, a huge failure. But from a government perspective, we're a great in investment because if I invest in your company, okay, congratulations for that, by the way, um, but it fails, sorry, at least it was a quick failure. But out of that failing company emerge four, and sometimes the number is 4T, new startups based on the talent, the IP, even the lessons learned, the things that they did wrongly in your company, but now did right in the other company. As a venture capitalist, I still hate you. It was a bad investment, I'm not happy. As a government, investing in your failing company was an amazing investment. It was actually a very good investment because it yielded 40 new startups. Maybe the success didn't happen in your firm, but who cares? You know, the house always wins. And, and that's one of the reasons, by the way, why the chief scientist should and did take more risk than you know, the, the, the average investor. Uh, in terms of companies, really, I think almost, almost every successful Israeli companies had some sort of chief scientist funding in it. So you could really go on the, uh, you know, on, on the exit. Some started even in the, in the incubators. You know, one recent one, which is uh, interesting because it's not in information communication technologies, Mazor Robotics, uh, which was acquired for $1.6 billion um, after being a, a public company. And it started in a Technion incubator. It actually started, uh, and there are so many other examples of companies which, which, which started uh, in the incubators and became very successful or just got chief scientist funding along the way. But, but if you look into a company which did not take any chief scientist funding, okay, but I'm bringing it anyway, which better place, right? Right. Huge failure in terms of financially. Uh, really, I raised, I don't know the numbers, but. This is the company, just for our listeners, that um, had, the idea was electric vehicles, and instead of plugging your car in, you would pull up to a, a station, and you would just have a battery switch uh, between your car and the batteries that they would be charging, so you could just pull away with a brand new fresh. So they, they actually uh, had locations all over Israel, raised a ton of money, had a great vision, and then failed. And they took upon themselves of doing everything, right? So they, you know, from from, from the cars to the get to the state, not gas station, right? the charging stations and infrastructure. Although a lot of their charging stations were in gas stations. Uh, uh, true, yeah. true. Um, so again, I I, do, I don't remember the numbers, but certainly over a billion dollars went into this company. That's 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 not a success. But I can tell you that I see the seeds of that company today in the. Uh, multinational R&D centers, automotive and others, in smart grid applications, in areas that you wouldn't think that are relevant because people gained a lot of uh, knowledge, a lot of training, uh, a lot of IP was created within that company that is being used today in the Israeli high techs. From, from a chief scientist perspective, uh, success is, is, is a funny way to, to look upon it. And I think uh, you're not interested in the one company. You're not interested in the one project. You really want the ecosystem to be healthy. And you look from a macro perspective to see that all the indicators reflect that the fountain of innovation is flowing uh, and, and Israel continues to be a, a, leading, a leading hub of innovation. Perhaps your biggest innovation as a chief scientist was your establishment of the Israel Innovation Authority, which you mentioned uh, earlier. So tell us a little bit about, about this and, and what the purpose is and why'd you set it up? 
So uh, creation of the Israel Innovation Authority was a four years project, <laughs> uh, during, during which three ministers were replaced. Oh, so every time, as you can imagine, you have to pretty much restart, recoup, uh, build, uh, build your coalition again. But it was certainly, uh, I, think, I think it was the, my biggest project, mostly because it's the enabler for many of my other projects. Uh, so coming into the office of the chief scientist, um, for me, it was obvious that um, not because of failure, but rather because of success, change had to be created. Uh, a lot of the policies were created in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Israel was a very different place in 2010, and it needed a new type of innovation policy and a new type of uh, entity to carry it, to carry it forward. Um, really, if I need just to highlight a few of the things, Number one, the pace of change was accelerating. And you couldn't just have a typical government entity, even if it's the best of the world, by the way, which, which I think it is. Uh, it's just not good enough to support the ever-changing landscape uh, of high-tech in every, every possible dimension you could think about. Technology, markets, everything is changing. You need to be agile, you need to, be, to move as quickly as you can to support those changes. But if I need to choose one word which I was seeking for, the word is impact. Uh, I thought that uh, our current policies and the current organization was not creating enough impact. And again, reason was that unlike the 70s, 80s, and 90s, the government became a much smaller place in terms of funding. So it certainly wasn't about the money. The Israeli ecosystem was doing very, very well on its own. and. Um, I thought we need to look hard into ourselves and think, okay, what are the things we're not doing as good and where does the Israel uh, ecosystem should improve? Um, I thought the role of the chief, chief scientist is to look 10 and 20 years forward and try to look for the glass ceilings, identify them in advance and try to see how you can break forward. Um, and I thought the challenges are, are numerous. Uh, for example, Israel is uh, highly concentrated uh, along one main technology stream, which is information communication technology. True, we managed to use that capability for different new markets as they arise, you know, from communication, enterprise software, storage, cybersecurity, now automotive as the car becomes more connected, digital and autonomous. But it's all around one branch. And I thought we needed to create more branches of excellence and leadership, you know, health, Healthcare is one of them, so, and there are reasons why that, agri-tech and, and others. So that, that's one, one place to break the glass ceiling. Another one was the human capital. I thought that was the biggest burning issue, and we, we weren't doing anything about that. The chief scientist traditionally didn't do anything about creating human capital. Today, it does a lot of things. It leads a government effort to infuse more human capital into the system by doing a lot of things, by bringing uh, populations which are underrepresented there, by bringing people from outside of Israel, by creating more entry points to high tech besides just the universities. It, it, it really is a, a big effort. I thought uh, there needs to be a diversification in markets. Uh, so US and Europe are great and amazing, but we should, there's a blind spot in Asia. And a lot of what I did as chief scientist was to try to target that part of the world, the emerging markets. And again, I think Israel today is in a, an amazing place in terms of our... It's amazing uh, watching how many countries in Africa yeah. want to create... Africa is the next frontier, obviously. Africa is the next place, uh, I think, after, uh, uh, after Asia. Because we have something that, that the world needs, and I, and I think they have something that we can benefit for, from. So I'm a big, big believer in, in, in collaboration. So the, 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 and maybe the last point would be 
how can we bring R&D, innovation, high productivity into larger parts of the Israeli economy and not just high tech? You mentioned before some of the challenges about the workplace human capital. Uh, there are a lot of people, very smart, qualified people in Israel uh, who are not necessarily employed mm -hmm. that could be the next, you know, tapping into the next big um, pool of human capital and, and, and employees. I want to talk to you about, about a couple of them, Arab Israelis and Haredi, um, the ultra-Orthodox ultra um, members of our population. So I'm wondering, what's your, what's your outlook? I mean, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm personally a believer that uh, the more people we can bring into the, into the workplace, the better it's going to be. I'm wondering what, what your perspective as a former chief scientist is yeah, on so that. And I'm, I'm, I'm a huge believer in, in, in both these communities, and I, I did a lot as chief scientist. I'm actually doing some stuff today, even uh, as part of my uh, non-for-profit uh, uh, activities. Remember, I mentioned the one million people coming from the Soviet Union. They're, they're not coming anymore, but we have one million people here. So let's try to look at them. So let's analyze these two communities you talked about. Uh, the first one being the, the Arab Israelis, about 21% of the population. That's a large number. It's huge. Um, if you look into their share in high tech, it's about 3%. There's a huge gap, obviously, huge They're gap. They're massively underrepresented. Absolutely. Now let's look at the good news, for example. Uh, if we look into the percentage of Arab students within the relevant, and I apologize, uh, for all the other faculties, but the relevant faculties in Israeli universities, so computer science, uh, the, the engineering faculties, and, and so on. In 2012, the share of Arab students was 9%. So better than the 3%, still far from the 21%. But if you look into their share this year, it's about 15%. Wow. That's a huge improvement. And if you look into the Technion, which is, you know, like Israel's MIT, based in Haifa, 27% of the first-year students in the relevant faculties come from the Arab population. That's, that, that's a revolution. Okay? That, that's, a, that's, that, that's a huge, huge move. And we, and we, now, I think there's still a big challenge in making sure that these graduates find their place into the Israeli high-tech. And I'll say a word about that once we cover the ultra-Orthodox. But I think the good news is that the Arab Israelis, which, by the way, are learning in the same schools and the same curriculum, are also getting the same higher education. And, and they're, I think, an amazing pool of people to be a part of the Israeli high tech. The ultra-Orthodox Jews are bigger problems. A bigger problem mostly because they don't get, as part of their training, some of the necessary things for high tech. By the way, the biggest gap is English. Uh, it's not math, it's English. Uh, math is easier to teach 20-year-old than English. Uh, and English is the language of high-tech, not just if you do marketing. It's the language of high-tech if you do programming. It's the language of high-tech in every mail you write within the company. And it's something which is not taught in, you know, in the schools. Uh, the good news, uh, these guys know how to study. <laughs> oh, they do. <laughs> I encourage uh, any one of the listeners to go to uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the Stanford's and Harvard's of, uh, uh, of, of uh, the yeshivas. Uh, you, you see amazing people there, and I, I did that. Um, 
And they also know how to study in a relevant way, by the way. So I think the, a lot of the, you know, the, the, the question asking, the, the, the logic. Tal- the, the Talmudic approach to, to this could be, if we were able to tap into that, it could be yeah. just a gigantic By the way, my, the, I, I know in Korea, for example, they identify Talmud as one of the secrets of, of the startup nation, and they're teaching Talmud in their school. <laughs> because the way, it's not about what you teach, it's about the way you teach. Anyway, but, and I think the other good news is that quietly, um, there are undercurrents in that society that even if not encourage people to go there, at least don't, the barriers are not as high. Uh, so I think this is another pool of, of people which is, could be very, very relevant uh, and great. And, and I'll just say here, you know, and I'll, 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 things that I, can, I think I can more freely say now than I was in government. I think for this to happen, a lot needs to happen, not just on the... Arabs and ultra-Orthodox side. A lot needs to happen on the high-tech side, on the employees, on the employers' side. Mm-hmm. Okay, because the Israeli high-tech, which is bold, out of the box, uh, you know, really ever-challenging, is on this front too conservative and too lazy. It's very, high, very easy to hire the 8,200 graduate with studying Technion and did two years in Intel or Google. Uh, but I think... The high-tech employers need, because the demand is there, they need the people. They need to create the right facilities, training schemes and programs, openness in the recruiting process to make sure that these new sources of capital are being integrated into the high-tech. One last question that I want to go into just a few minutes on on what you're currently doing. But um, just a couple of days ago, maybe even yesterday, Bloomberg came out with the Bloomberg Innovation Index, and Israel was number five in the world. I was actually surprised. I thought we would be number one, two, maybe three. Um, is Israel losing its high tech edge? Yeah, so you're such a journalist. It's true we were five. <laughs> I'm actually a financial advisor. No, no, I know, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> I know, okay. I know. But, that, but that five is actually an improvement from our last year. Uh, so we actually went up uh, five places. So it's true, when I, when I got that, uh, so I, 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 I heard the news, someone told me about it, and I said, okay, only four more places to go, right? We don't like to be uh, number five, we don't like to be number two. But you have to remember, and it's true, by the way, for most of the rankings, the World Economic Forum ones and, and, and you know, Bloomberg that you mentioned, and there are others as well. Israel, you get the two pictures, and I think the number five here is a mixture of those two places. When you have the overall ranking, we're typically 21, 22, 23, and we typically fall on ease of doing business, regulation, bureaucracy, and so on. When you focus just on the parts which reflect innovation, science, entrepreneurship, we're number one or two or three. That's a good place to be, by the way. I don't, and I, seriously, I don't really care if we're number one, two or three. We're in less than nine million people country. Uh, it's a good place to be at. And I think all the peer group in that Bloomberg are countries that we really want to be compared to. You know, we, we like to be closer to, you know, South Korea and, and Germany, Switzerland and Japan, and not necessarily to, to other countries. I think Israel being able to achieve this leadership in such a, a challenging uh, you know, environment, economy, history, uh, I, I think is a remarkable achievement. So, um, you know, number five, and, and hopefully next year will be uh, at least one place up. So in 2017, you left, um, you, you, you finished your term as a chief scientist, and you went on to, uh, to a, a fund uh, called Emerge2. 
which is, I guess, a joint fund uh, Israeli investments uh, by, by China. Can you talk a little bit about Emerge too? Sure. So first of all, I mean, I have to say, I, I left the government and then I had one year of cooling off period or guardian of course, leave, of course. and we have to mention that. And I actually right. took that quite seriously. It was an amazing year on a personal level, but uh, I couldn't do any anything related to uh, the private sector. To the private, well, not just the private sector. Actually, I couldn't even teach at university. I couldn't do anything. Uh, but after a year, I came back and and basically doing a lot of things. But on the business side, I've uh, I've joined a fund called Emerge, which is basically a venture capital firm, which was uh, founded. Emerge One was founded uh, you know, about two or three years ago. Uh, investing in Israeli early stage companies, uh, deep technology companies, and really had a, an amazing portfolio, uh, but having a, um, a strong focus on Asia in general and, and China specifically in the sense of trying to connect Israel companies to those markets and also to those sources of innovation. So the source of capital is Israeli money? No. So okay. the, the fund invests only in Israeli companies. And by the way, it doesn't impose anything on them. So it's not as if... In the charter, there's the uh, uh, the importance of bringing the, but it, it presents to those companies the opportunity of looking into what's happening on Asia in general and China uh, specifically, and through the extensive uh, list of uh, limited partners. So the fund investors are extremely influential people and companies within the you know, Asian tech market and investment. So you would find their managing partners of venture capital firms, large angels. Uh, CEOs and founders of you know, companies like Alibaba, Tencent, and others. Um, and through that, what uh, the fund has managed to do, and, and with me, obviously, we expand that, that network globally, is to connect the Israeli companies to those market opportunities, to understand you know, what are the gaps, what are the challenges, but also help them in developing their business outside of Israel. You could have chosen any fund. You could have taken probably much any job uh, out there. China, Israel, what's the future? So I'm, I'm a big believer in the opportunity and as chief scientist, I, I'm happy to say, and I don't say about, about a lot of things. I think a lot of what we did initially in the office of the chief scientist ended up being a government of Israel and a prime minister agenda. And I'm very pleased to see and look into what has evolved on the China-Israel front because I think there's a high level of complementarity and there's a lot to do together. Having said that, I, I don't believe it's a zero-sum game. And I, know I lived in the U.S. and I did business in the U.S. and I'm a big believer, obviously, in the strategic relations. And I don't think it should be either or. I think there are different types of innovations and, and different types of collaboration to be done with both markets. But I think China and Asia in, in general for Israel was a blind spot. The Israeli high-tech didn't do it for obvious reasons. Um, but I'm old enough to remember how 20 and 30 years ago uh, we were... We didn't, do any, we didn't know anything about the U.S. market, and we did very poorly there. And today, obviously, it sounds science fiction with so many business ties, and everybody has a textbook written about how to do business in the U.S. But I remember how it was then, and I thought as chief scientist that government need, needed to lead the way. And today, I think that we need to actively help the Israeli high-tech find its way into these not just uh, you know, great markets, but also sources of innovation and collaboration. I'm going to ask you one last question, um, and that is, when you were 18 years old, you once met a defense minister. <laughs> Tell us the story, if you can. Yeah, I'm not sure, again, I can, I, so I, I'll, I'll, say, I'll say the following. Uh, the, the, the specific position that I was in within 8200 gave us um, 
So it wasn't it wasn't uh, so rare to have uh, dealings with uh, you know, the army chief of staff or sometimes the minister of defense. As I've said, uh, many times they were interested in actually hearing from the field, if you'd like, what they think about. I, I think the education and training that we got was to actually say what we think. And even if it meant disagreeing with a minister or a general, even if it meant presenting a different point of view, um, a lot of this was based actually on the 1973 uh, trauma of the Yom Kippur War, where you know um, 8200 actually knew what was happening but didn't manage to convince uh, other parts of the government. So um, I think, and again, I can't go into the specifics of what happened there, but uh, that, that minister of him, which by the way was Yitzhak Rabin, later to be the, the prime minister of Israel, uh, came to visit our base and asked some questions and, uh, and had some statements which I disagreed with. And I uh, you know, basically stood up and, uh, and voiced my uh, disagreement, which, which was less amazing than you could think in that environment. And I think this really shows what Israel is based all about. Is, is I think by giving those young people the empowerment to speak their mind, the can-do attitude that, that you could really go and do there is, is really what makes Israel uh, the startup nation. Is this the end of your public service or do I, uh, do I hear a second round potentially? Um, I, I, I think for now it's... <laughs> I, I'm, That's I, the answer I, of a politician. <laughs> no, I, I'll, I'll say the following. I'm, I'm spending 25% of my time in public non-for-profit work. Um, but for now, I think it's a good, it's a good mix. It's hard to find a better job than the one I did. I think the chief scientist is really the best job in the government. But, you know, I, I remain mindful about, uh, about the future of the country. I'll, I'll tell you one, one, one last story. Um, almost every C-level executive that visited Israel stopped at my office. Okay, I had the privilege of hosting every CEO, you know, CTO of a large multinational. They all came to visit me. And I always had a question. I said, what's your biggest impression of Israel? And you get amazing answers, by the way, amazing answers there. We don't have the time to tell all the stories. Uh, you know, two quick one. One said, every place I went into, people were Israelis, which I said, okay. Sound natural. I said, no, if, if you go to you know, MIT or Silicon Valley, you find very few Americans there. Or if, a lot of people from Korea, from India, from China, from Japan, from Israel. I'm not sure that's a good thing, by the way, but that was an interesting notion that he said. Uh, but the story I wanted to tell is that he said, and I, I don't think I can mention the company, but it was the CEO of a very large American public company. And he said, you know, we met 18 companies during my, you know, 18 startup companies, and all of them, besides selling their product, were selling Israel. They were all telling me, first and foremost, before just you know, talking about their companies, talking about, I should do more business in Israel and how it is important. And he said, this is something that maybe you don't always appreciate is something which is very strong. And I think, by the way, it's important to maintain that uh, common vision. And, uh, but I think it's, it's part of the strengths of understanding that there's more than just yourself. And I think anyone who's lived through the Israel story has that thing. Abi Hasson, thank you very much for your time. We really do appreciate it. This was great. And uh, we're looking forward to hearing about your success at Emerge and uh, hopefully future service to the people, which I'm, I'm sure will come. So thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Startup Stories from the Startup Nation. I'm the host, Yigal Marcus. The associate producers are Moshe Raps and Avi Maklis, and the senior research analyst is Lior Levin. 
If you have a startup that you think we should feature on air, please email me at yigal.marcus at bernstein.com or at startupstoriesisrael at gmail.com. No good startup in Israel is too big or too small. A big, very special thank you to my employer, Alliance Bernstein Investment Management and Research, who has been incredibly supportive of this initiative. And please share these podcasts with your friends, like us on Facebook, and please, please, please rate us on iTunes. Until next time, thank you for listening.